You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I want to tell you quickly about a uh, sponsor that is making this week's show possible, but really they've made many weeks of our show possible. They are our friends at Alarm Grid. And if you own a home and you are looking for a security system, Alarm Grid is a fantastic option. Here's why. The alarm system game is rigged. It is uh, It's kind of a scam. There's two ways to get you. Either they charge you through the nose for equipment or the equipment's free, but you need to sign a contract for like the rest of your life. That is not how Alarm Grid approaches the problem. They are trying to put a solution out that works for customers. They've got equipment that you can set up yourself. It's totally top of the line. It works with any system. There aren't any weird, scammy fees that show up later. It's all above board. It's totally transparent. They've been supporting us for a long time, and they could support you. With security. So go to alarmgrid.com slash longform. That's alarmgrid.com slash longform. Make your house secure and uh, do it without getting host. Okay, here's the show. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am Max Linsky. I am back with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Where have you been? All over the place, man. I was all over the place. I went away with my family which is when this interview was taped. I escaped my family. I'd been in a house with my mom for several days. And I vacation thought, taping. It was a vacation taping. Yeah, I was in uh, New England, and there is a writer for the Boston Globe, formerly of the Boston Globe, named Sarah Schweitzer, who writes these incredible stories, and I've wanted to have her on for a long time. And since I was in her neighborhood, I figured I would try and talk to her. So I did. She lives in New Hampshire, and I was in Rhode Island, and so we met halfway at a library in Concord, Massachusetts. Shout out to the Concord Library for giving us a room. Also, I should say, they made me say I was a nonprofit. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so I lied to the Concord Library. Sorry. I feel like we're a nonprofit in the spirit of we don't make very much Yeah, that's profit. what I, that was kind of my response. It's like, well, we're not a technically, but we, we're a bad business. Yeah. Does that count? Yeah, I think it, it works in my book. Uh, how about sponsors? Sponsors. I think you know who the sponsor is. MailChimp, as always. If you are starting an email newsletter, here's a nice thing about MailChimp I've been noticing is people put the sign up for MailChimp comes out as tweets and it's got a nice little button and you just sign right up there. I signed up for a newsletter that way. Hey, that's the kind of service you're going to get for your business with MailChimp. Thank you, MailChimp. Okay, Max, uh, we're not going to let you get away without talking about your other podcast that yep. you're on right now. 
Oh, yeah, I'm doing another podcast. Your JV podcast. Yeah, it's just a sideline podcast that you've got going. Max has got another little idea. I don't think it's going anywhere. I don't think anyone's going to listen to it, but you can tell people about it. Uh, I got a new co-host, and her name is Hillary Clinton. So what takes place in this podcast with you and Hillary Clinton? I mean, we just talked. Which might or might not be a joke. (laughs) It is a real thing. Uh, I am going to be having these conversations with Hillary Clinton for a podcast called With Her. It's going to run through now on Election Day. And you are not only hosting, but you are also producing this podcast with a new company that you formed to do things like this. It's true. The company is called Pineapple Street Media. It is with our old friend, Jenna Weiss-Berman. Jenna Weiss-Berman, not editing this show because she has important things to do, like producing a podcast with Hillary Clinton. Questionable. Questionable. People can find it. Uh, They can find it on iTunes. They can find it on HillaryClinton.com. And... uh, yeah, it's pretty crazy. When can people hear new episodes of with her? Literally when it like whenever she has time. Like okay. the the way this is going to work is like if there's 20 minutes in her schedule I get a call and it's like fly to Nevada. Okay, so go to iTunes now, subscribe to that show. Uh between now and November, you can hear even more of Max Linsky. And now on our podcast, the Longform podcast. Here's Max with Sarah Schweitzer. Hey, Sarah Schweitzer. Hey, Max. Welcome to the Concord Free Library. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We should thank the fine people of the Concord Free Library. They have allowed us to take over a conference room. It's nice. It's super. I should also just tell listeners there is a um, door outside with a keypad that people keep beeping into. So if you hear some beeps, that is that. But uh, this is great. I was on vacation in Rhode Island, and you live in New Hampshire. That's right. And Concord is like pretty much halfway, it's, right? It's, you know, it's a good place to meet. <laughs> so here we are in the right. basement of the Concord Library. I'm very excited to be here with you. Thanks. I am very excited to be here too. This morning, I reread The Life and Times of Strider Wolf, and I don't know where else to start. Uh, just quickly give people like the synopsis of that story. Sure. Strider Wolf was, is a little boy that lives in Maine, and he, at the age of two, suffered terrible abuse. Uh, His mother's boyfriend one night just dragged him out to a a little house where he did his work using a grindstone most nights. And on this particular night, it was freezing. And he kept him out there. And we don't really know what, what happened to Strider, but we do know he suffered incredible injuries. And by the time he was brought back inside, his mother was preparing to leave the house, but totally did not realize that Strider had suffered anything. And she drove around, did some errands, and apparently then drove to the hospital when she realized that his eyes were rolling in the back of his head. The abuse became a story, like in the local In the press. local papers, yeah. it, was, it was a big story. And, and luckily, Strider survived. He spent a year on a feeding tube and managed to make it back, more or less physically intact. And emotionally, though, it was a totally different story. So fast forward four years, I'm looking around for a story one day, and I just start looking through court records. And it was the New Hampshire Supreme Court database, and I came upon the decision rejecting the abuser's appeal. I don't know what made me think I should go look into this story. It's one of those things like you just sort of, in a moment, it hit me that maybe there's something here and what happened to this little boy. And so I did a little searching and found out that he was living in Maine with his grandparents. And I called around, I couldn't find the grandparents. So I called the local police chief and I said to him, you know, Hey, I'm just trying to find these people. And he said, well, so am I. 
and if you find them, you need to let them know I'm looking for them. And I said, okay, but could you do the same for me? Because I have a feeling you're going to find them before I do. And sure enough, he let him know I was looking for him. And Lynette, Strider's grandmother, called me. And what had been going on is they had been evicted. And the reason the police wanted to find him is because they wanted to make sure the kids were okay. And so from there, I followed Strider and his family through yet this other massive trauma in Strider's life. And to me, it was a story about a five-year-old boy trying in this mess that adults had made to find love and to fill this incredible hole that had been made for him by a mother who ended up going to jail for not caring for him by a father who wasn't really in a position to care for him and grandparents who were overburdened and layered with their own histories. So it was a story that we followed for four months and watched as Strider tried in his own very special way, because I do think Strider's a pretty special kid, to fill that hole. It wrecked me. Oh, sorry. It it absolutely wrecked me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it wrecked me when I read it, and and uh, it wrecked me again this morning. Um, I think particularly, like as a, a dad, yeah, it's it's really hard. Uh, it's really hard to read. Um, do you have kids? I have two kids. Yeah. How old are they? They well, that that was one thing that 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 hit me hard too, because my daughter was six at the time I was doing the reporting. So she was a, a year older than Strider. And I have a little boy who's five now, but he was three, so closer to Gallagher's age. And so... Gallagher is Strider's little brother. Right. So, you know, I would come home from staying with Strider and Gallagher and hanging out with them and being with them for long periods of time and watching them try to negotiate this incredibly difficult life. And then I'd come home to my house where my kids have, you know, all of the normal privileges and indulgences and they want for nothing, as far as I can tell because I'm a perfect mother, as you know. Um, And so it would be hard because I'd hear them be like, I want this. And I'd be like, oh, my goodness. Like my brain was saying, you don't need that. You do not need that. Like Strider doesn't have that. It took me like a couple hours actually to come down and be like, no, this is they live a different life and this is the way the world works. But it did seem very hard to get my brain to understand that Strider and my kids had different existences and that it was so unfair, you know. What about the other way when you would go and spend this time with them in their trailer in Maine? Was it hard to go from mom to reporter? I mean, was it hard not to be like, I fuck, here's a bike, you know, yeah. like just here's a, I bought you a fucking bike. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. That was one of, I mean, immersing back in wasn't always hard. It was it, like any reporting. It's, it's, you know, you, you, you take on your reporter persona and you become that person who's there to listen and watch and you sort of zero yourself out to some degree. At least that's sort of the way I do it. And so immersing wasn't hard, but then that process, as I be there and see these deprivations and watch Strider trying so hard to fit into his grandparents' life and please them and make sure he wasn't causing trouble, even though five-year-olds cause trouble because that's just what they do. Um, and trouble, I mean, not bad trouble. We're talking leaving a toy out that someone trips over, that kind of stuff. The temptation was incredible to try and fix what would have been very fixable for someone like me. Jess Rinaldi and I, were the she was the photographer who worked with me, and there were many, many nights that we, after the reporting, it would be 9 o'clock, and we went to a particular restaurant, and we would just talk for a really long time about 
what we were doing with this story and how it was right to be standing back and letting it unfold. And in our journalistic hearts, of course, we knew that's what we had to do. But as human beings, we had to, it was like this necessary decompression period right. that we needed, both of us. And uh, the worst day was the day of the ice cream thing, you know, where Strider, he was really good at school. He got all smiley faces. And then he expected a promised he, ice cream cone. He had a deal with his grandfather. He had a deal with grandpa. All smiley faces. You got an ice cream cone at the end of the day. And they didn't do it. And they didn't do it. And they didn't do it. And we were waiting around waiting to see if it was going to happen. And it never happened. And there were very good reasons for why it couldn't. There were some car problems. And there were other things that came up. And all of the, the cataclysmic issues that arise when you have financial pressures and you've got just the weight and burden of knowing that you don't have a home that constantly weighs you down and in fact causes a lot of paralysis, at least from what I could see. And all of that came to bear and all I wanted to do was take Strider <laughs> in my car, which was sitting right there with gas and it was working and take him and go get that ice cream cone, but couldn't do it. I just want to, I want to press on this just for a second longer because I sort of know in, in like a sort of classical like journalism ethics sense why you can't do that. But one of the things that's so fabulous about this story is that the whole time you're reading it, it it's clear that it's like it's not a story that necessarily needs to get told or would normally get told, right? It's not emblematic of some larger societal issue. It's not about what happens to kids when they, you know, are taken from their parents. There's not some grand conclusion about the state system or any of that stuff to draw from it. Like it's a portrait of a kid in a family that is struggling. And I w wondered if it made it harder than maybe it would be in other cases to not just go get the ice cream cone. Right, because the societal good coming out of this story may not be the, the journalistic equivalent that we often reach for and say, oh, you know, we, we stay out of these stories because we're going to achieve something with this. We're going to change the world with this. Right, like the stakes yeah. are different. The stakes were different, yeah. Um, in the end, I guess it was the same journalistic feeling because when I go into those situations, I sort of become that reporter person. And I didn't actually know when I was doing all the reporting that it wasn't going to be some, I wasn't sure exactly what the story was going to be. In fact, it was one of those stories we went into realizing that there was an incredible person at the center of this thing and that Strider was, there really was a light and that we could hang a, an otherwise very sad, sad story on. I think had you not had Strider as this shining beacon of possible hope, that story would have just been a crumple of sad, and I don't think I could have written it. But I, I kept in mind this. It was still pretty crumply. It's still pretty crumply, but, but Strider, um, it, at least in my mind, stayed at the center of the story all the time, yeah. and that let me write it with my own sense of hope that maybe didn't come across, but I felt it. So you went into it not knowing exactly what the story was going to be. Not entirely, no. You were writing for the Globe at the time at a daily newspaper going through some very public budgetary trouble. Was it hard for you to get the space to go after a story like that? Like, I mean, four months spending all that time without even really knowing what the story is. Like, how do you sell that to your editor? <laughs> very carefully. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's, there are budgetary pressures and getting four months to do a story is absolutely a privilege. It would be, I think, at any time, at any paper, because I had been at the Globe now for 15 years. So 
going back to even to the, the good times when I had arrived, I think four months would have been a long time to ask for. By the same token, long form and, and these kinds of narrative stories are the kinds of things newspapers now know with empirical data are the things that people like to read. Because we now look and say, oh, this person is staying on this story for however many more minutes than they did on the story about X, Y, or Z out of wherever. We know these stories hold readers. And so there's been a renewed push and interest in doing these stories. At the same time, they take money. At the same time, we don't have that money. So it's a conundrum. And this story, for whatever reason, grabbed hold of editors from the very beginning because I came back with notebooks that I knew were really, really rich. We kept saying to ourselves, like, when are we going to finish this reporting? And we kept saying, well, you know, but your notebook is full. Like every time you go, you come back with a good scene. And mm-hmm. and to me, that was the measure of it, you know, because when you're writing a narrative story, you don't just want to go and have like a, you know, a whole mishmash. You want to know that you came away with something that is in fact a scene that can be developed and made into something that follows the arc of what you're trying to show. So it's hard always to get the time, but there were people at the paper who believed in this from the very beginning and um, credit to them. Is it hard in a story like this to find an ending? I mean, because the other thing that I was thinking about reading it is just like, it finishes and your first instinct is like, what, what, what's happened now? Where is he I now? Like, what's and I got some on? emails like that. They were like, was that the ending? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it really though, like, you know, his life is going to be dramatic and interesting for a very long time. Yeah. Was it hard to pull yourself out of it? Yeah. I think because the story that the, I mean, there's a couple arcs to the story, if you think of it as a story about his home situation. They lost their home, and then they found a home. So that offered a neat narrative arc. The arc that I think more people actually care about is the arc of Strider's life, and that would go till he was whenever. I mean, 18, 25, when he marries, when he chooses a job. I mean, there's any number of points you could choose out. Um, one of the things that I was reading while I wrote the story is Random Family. Yeah by Adrienne Nicole LeBlanc. Um, and she followed a family. I've been trying for, to get her on the show for so long. You should. She's, I, I she's going to do it. She's she do should it. do it. Happen. She should do it. And um, she's amazing. And that book is is should be required reading for, for anybody Best. doing this kind of stuff. But I was reading it, and it's a totally different story. This is about her story. A was over the arc of 10 years. It was about urban poverty, drugs, all kinds of problems, deeper problems in some ways, but the same cyclical familial bonds that also drove some of the problems. And the thing that I took away from her writing that just totally thunderstruck me was she took people that who otherwise would have been characters in a daily paper and decided, I care about every single decision these people make. I want to know every single motivation. I want to understand every way that they came at all the decisions that they made so that we feel like we are living the experience through them and they become like regular people that we all know because everyone's grappling with not these particular sets of decisions, but the same human emotions that drive these choices. And I thought, okay, you know, I can't do that over the course of 10 years, but if I can spend four months trying as best as I can to know how Lynette thinks and how Larry thinks and how Strider thinks, you know, that would come together in something that even over the course of just four months would give people a feel for be living on the edge that way. In a reporting sense, how do you do that? 
Well, you know, it depends. It was an interesting thing because like with a person like Lynette, she is somebody who likes to talk. And I think that having me and Jess there was actually a form of relief for her because we we listened and there weren't a lot of other people who wanted to hear the whole story. And so we were there and it didn't take a whole lot to, you know, get her talking because she enjoyed talking. And I think at times it could be really painful and sometimes she didn't want to talk. I needed to steer her towards some of the topics that I needed. But with this kind of reporting, more than not, I just wanted to see her in action, see Strider in action. And the interviews were absolutely secondary. So the reporting was in watching. And with Strider, what was interesting is that here you have a five-year-old boy. He can't talk. He can't answer questions. Five-year-olds cannot do that. They just don't have the I, not the five-year-olds I know. Like most five-year-olds are off thinking about their own things, playing make-believe. And so I had the benefit of talking with his um, therapists who very kindly helped me understand some of his thinking, but also helped me realize that the only way I was going to get to understand Strider was by watching him play. And so I spent a lot of hours just watching him in the woods and he would go off and take sticks and he'd hit things and he'd yeah. climb trees and, and you know, he'd go kind of far in and I would end up having to tell Lynette, don't worry, he's with me. And I would become his babysitter for just a little while. And I realized like it was such a strange reporting experience because on the one hand I'm saying, don't, don't climb so high. And then at the same time, I'm, you know, I'm watching him taking notes right. and then... I mean, were you actually saying, don't climb so high? There were times I was like, please don't go that high. I'm watching you. I don't want you to fall out of that tree. Um, you know, in tying his shoe. And I might be kind of like harping here. And uh, excuse me if like about this is nitpicky. But help me understand the difference between don't climb so high in that tree yeah. and, I, and the ice cream cone. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and I think that was the confusing thing in my own mind because here I am saying, I need time alone with Strider. I need to see how he behaves away from Lynette because his behaviors were different. When he's with Lynette, he's trying to please Lynette. And when he's by himself, he's doing make-believe about his day. And I'm beginning to understand all the traumas that he experienced in his little kindergarten classroom. And so I needed that time with him. So I think I made a deal with myself that I said, you know, I need to keep him safe. Mm-hmm. And I'm not altering the story by keeping him from falling out of that tree. And I'm enabling myself to be his caretaker so that I can see this reporting. On the other hand, the ice cream cone would have totally altered the moment right. and actually changed the course of how he felt and what he was doing. Um, it's a fine line. Yeah, maybe, it's just maybe, a gray area. You know, it's yeah. like, I mean... <laughs> like this is totally like cynical and terrible but like if he had fallen out of a tree like that would have been like a good scene right yeah right exactly <laughs> and then it would have been on me <laughs> what do you think he thought about what you were doing uh you know he he was so invested in lynette's approval that once lynette gave the okay and said yeah these are my friends strider you should feel comfortable with them then in order to please lynette he was then willing to let us in initially and i think over time he became more comfortable with us and we just became part of the background. I don't know what he really thought about our actual job. I mean, he knew what we were doing. It was a newspaper story. It was going to appear in the Boston Globe. Um, how much of that he really got? I, I don't know. I would imagine a five-year-old doesn't really get what that means. I don't think so. Although also like a five-year-old kind of thinks they're the star of their own movie all the time. Right, you know? exactly. <laughs> I wonder what he thought when like the paper came out. 
Yeah, I think Lynette showed it to him. I don't know if she read the whole thing to him, but he knew. I mean, the thing that happened for him, though, is that the story generated a lot of um, donations and a lot of money. And so um, that's, he, he saw a very tangible change in his life after the story ran. So in that way, there's no way he could miss the fact that the story ran. He knew, I mean, in his own mind, he probably thinks you have a story written about you and toys arriving at your house. So, <laughs> you know, he was all on board. <laughs> was it hard to get her on board? I mean, how do you, how do you approach someone like Lynette? You know, she's taking care of these two boys who were in the news. One of them went through this unspeakable trauma. Um, there were really bright lights for a little while and then the lights went away and she has been left to try and raise these kids and she's not particularly psyched about it, but she's doing it. Right. How do you approach her and say, I want to like dive bomb into your life for four months? (laughs) Um, For me, it took an initial visit. Um, I think it's always a bit of a dance initially because I think both people need to feel comfortable and I think of it as chemistry to some degree and I don't mean chemistry as in are we going to be friends or are we going to like want to hang out it's not about liking the person it's about do they feel comfortable with me and do I feel like I'm getting from them what I need and 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 are they able to open up am I able to like understand their vibe a little bit and mm. it's sort and that's why I say it's chemistry because I can't quite put my finger on what it is about people that makes me comfortable and what makes me com- them with me vice versa um I think it just sometimes happens so during that first meeting I felt pretty comfortable with her and I think she felt comfortable with me and so we we chatted and then when I realized that I did want to follow them for quite a while I called her and, and I, I like to be very upfront with people and say, you know, it's going to be annoying sometimes. <laughs> like, a, we're gonna this be is going to be a little intense. It's going to be, yeah, you know, we're going to be around and there's going to be times you won't want us around. You may need some privacy and you're going to need to say, please leave. Like you need to know that that's totally fine. Um, you can't do it all the time, but you need to know you can say that to us and we won't be offended. Like you need that space, but it's going to be intense. And she, for whatever reason, for, you know, everyone's got their own reasons. I don't think people do these stories like altruistically. I think some people think it's an important story. Some people like the idea of someone coming and paying attention and listening. Um, I think Lynette may have fallen a little bit into both categories. Yeah. It also seemed to me like she really wanted people to know that she was doing something really hard. I think she felt like not enough people understand how tough it is as a grandmother who was not expecting to do this again, to then have to do it again and deal with emotional fallout from people who you weren't even psyched were joining your family in the first place. (laughs) She wasn't that happy about Strider's mom in the first place. So yeah, I think she felt really burdened and I think she was just glad that somebody was listening and saying, yeah, I understand this is super hard. That vibes thing you were just talking about, is that something like you've always had the ability to detect or is that something you learn after doing this for a long time? I never sort of been, was able to pinpoint that that's what it was for me. I mean, I think I've always had certain people that I've done stories about that I thought, wow, I mean, I totally connect with you. You're so different. I'm not sure we would be friends in any other realm, but I really get the way you think. It's different from my thinking, but I just enjoy hearing the way you talk and it's just really cool to be able to dip into your life and thank you so much like that feeling you know 
But that's always been kind of daily stories. And I only really started doing super long-term stories in the last five years. And so that chemistry has become that much more critical. I mean, mm -hmm. you can do a daily story about anybody and I think it'll work out fine. But I do think from the beginning, you feel a connection with people when yeah. you're trying to go deep in their lives and they don't even know you. You've, you can feel when you're sort of getting past the surface with people. How do you think we're doing? I feel like we are really connecting here, Max. <laughs> Good. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. <laughs> All right. Let's go back a little bit. So uh, you started at the paper in Concord. Yeah. And then went to the St. Pete Times. Right. Like heyday St. Pete Times. Yes. Totally that, heyday. Like, like 90s, late 90s St. Pete Times. French yeah. and Hull, the whole, good, the whole shebang. Good times St. Pete Times. Very good times. Pointer Institute just sitting on a giant pile of money. Absolutely. Journalism's golden age was, was never going to end. It was very good. I was there a little over two years. I had a really hybrid existence there because I was the night cops reporter for a year. So I was Miss Go Out and Cover the Bodies and, and the Mayhem. And a lot of mayhem there. A lot of mayhem, a lot of bodies. So I was doing this you know, very quick hit, midnight, this is what happened on the mean streets of Tampa last night. So I was doing that. And, and, but what that allowed me to do was that I had a three to midnight shift. And so uh, you know, when you're a young gung-ho reporter, what are you going to do before three o'clock? So I was out sort of doing other stuff and working on other stories. And I ended up writing my first narrative story there. What like, was it about? It was about a family that took in the most foster kids that any family in the history of this particular county had ever, they took in 500 plus kids and they were all girls. And 500? 500 kids over the course Sorry, of 20 I years. I, I know. Like, what? Yeah. They, 500 they kids? They had taken in so many kids. And it was at a time when foster care in Tampa was just in peril. They were housing kids in offices and they had nowhere to put kids. And so this particular family was thinking about getting out. And so I caught them at that very moment and spent a summer watching um, a particular group of girls. And there was one girl named Lisa who was incredibly precocious and smart and beautiful and had everything going for her and was absolutely ruining her chances with this family. She was doing everything she could to cause trouble with the other girls and with these parents. And it was about basically Lisa and this mom and how they ended up making their way through this very difficult summer for both of them. And it was another story where I just immersed and I really didn't know, I had never written narrative stories. I didn't know what I was doing. But I had a great notebook. I knew that I had good stuff. And I remember that um, I emailed Tom French, who didn't know me. And I was this little pipsqueak reporter in Tampa. And he said, oh, let's go out to lunch. And he took me out to lunch. And he spent two hours trying to, you know, just give me the pointers. And to this day, I remember so many of the things he said. And they totally, I mean, it's like that generosity is so amazing because you know i've tried to pay it forward and it sticks with you and you know you can't do this job without people like that helping you with these huge massive things that i'm not sure where any of us are really that equipped to do without help what did he say what are the things that, that stuck well, with you? well the most important thing he told me was so there were about 15 girls in this house and he told me you can't write about all of them you have to pick one and i said but i've got notes on his you know lisa's sisters and i've got so much about this other girl he's like none of that matters you have to write about lisa lisa is your character lisa and that mom those are your characters and he was kind i mean he didn't make me feel bad about it but he was really adamant about that and 
He's totally right. I mean, absolutely. Can you imagine a mess of a story about 15 <laughs> right. girls and all their different issues? I mean, it, it would have been so watered down. It was, it was a really nice distillation of what goes on in a foster care home between people, you know, because that's what it is. I mean, like Lisa had her expectations and her hopes and all of this stuff. And, and the mom wanted something out of the experience, too. And they were just crashing. And she's a teenager. So you can imagine, like... It's yeah, everything it's all. Intense. It's super intense. It was a very intense house. And um, yeah, so Tom, that was the thing that totally saved that story. Did you feel good about it when it ran? Were you happy with I it? I was super happy about that story. I To this day, I think it's my favorite story. Really? I think so, because it was so um, mind-blowingly this thing of, wow, you know, you can do stories like this. This is cool. And it got a great reception, and it felt like it mattered. It felt like it showed people the way other people live and like that's a job that seems worth it to me um i like that feeling of, did the other stuff not feel worth it the other stories do you yeah. mean uh not nearly as much for me i felt like this story was was I, i've written other stories that aren't narrative that that seem important but uh you know in the sense of like they have important issues and you know oh, the governor said this and i mean but none of that stuff feels as important to me personally mm-hmm. as when i can say to a reader like here this is what it looks like inside this house and it creates empathy between readers and what they read and feels like that's a value that, that that's worth it. So did you realize at that point that that's what you wanted to be doing? No, I wish I had because <laughs> then I wouldn't have done some other stuff. But no, I think I thought, well, that was nice. That was a one-off. Okay. Now I got to go back and be dutiful and I got to write about politics or I got to go write about whatever. And <laughs> so I, I spent some years doing other stuff. I mean, all of it I enjoyed, but I think I realized that my heart lies with these kinds of stories. How'd you figure that out? Doing more of them, like finally making my way back to them and seeing that A, I can kind of do it and enjoy the process of it and B, like it, the, the, the results resonated with people. And so that felt, I get, I get, again, I got kind of that feedback loop that felt good. It's interesting to me that the story that you love the most was about a foster kid uh, because you've got that and you've got Strider. And then you wrote a, a story in 2015 about another kid who was a whale. <laughs> yeah. Who also had had a very tough upbringing. The whale's name is Bela. And the story is called Chasing Bela. It is a uh, fantastic story. It was a finalist for the Pulitzer, if mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken. And Reading that and Strider this morning back to back and then hearing you say that your first piece was about a foster kid in St. Pete, they all are about kids who are in tough situations and trying to find something good, Mm -hmm. trying to make their way in the world. Um, And I wondered why you think you were so drawn to those stories. Oh, that's a really nice way to put it. I hadn't thought of Bela quite in that way. I just am drawn, I think, to the notion that we start out as these creatures that just want love and we're programmed that way to try to find it and to make our lives whole. We we are, as humans, are so strong in that way. And we get knocked down and, and adults do some horrible things to us because the adults have had horrible things done to us. And there are some terrible cycles in this world. But there's always this opportunity to stop that cycle. And there are people who come along who do try in their own flawed ways to stop it. So, I mean, in the Bela story, 
Michael Moore, the whale scientist who sets out to try to save Bela and whales like her. He's the intervener. And we feel hope in this world when we know there's Michael Moore's. Um, Strider had his grandmother who had her issues herself and her, her limitations, but she tried every which way she could to make sure that little boy came back from where he'd been. And the foster care story, the same thing. So I think I find a lot of heart in, um, in these stories. And I feel like they're so very real and they're so universal. They may seem so out of the ordinary because luckily not many of us have suffered what Strider did and certainly Bayless' experience as a whale is not one we all know. But I think we can understand the feeling of searching for love in the mess and we all do it to some degree and to some degree less than others. What was your childhood like? It was idyllic and it was perfect. I mean, we had, I have three sisters and a mom who was really dedicated to us. And where uh, do you fall in the three? I was oldest. Yeah. You know, we were a tight group because my dad wasn't around. So it was like the ladies against the world. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I had that model of a mom who worked a lot and gave it her all and just taught us to be really, you know, tough. Figure it out yourself. Not a lot of like handholding, but at the same time, tender and caring and like knowing that your home was where you were safe. So I, I feel like I had that, but I, there were moments because there were four girls and there was one mom that things got a little hairy and there wasn't always enough to go around. So I can identify with some of these people. I certainly don't think my, like my experience was a really good one compared to so many people, but that little glimmer of knowing what it feels like to be able to not have it at every moment when you want it. I can understand that. I think part of what makes your story so powerful is that um, it's not always comfortable to look at that stuff. It's not, Strider's story is hopeful ultimately, but it's, it's hard. It's hard to read uh, and it's hard to think about how many other kids, maybe it's not quite as dramatic, but how many other kids are out there and trying to overcome some pretty hard stuff. I think, yeah. And I mean, don't you think that a lot of people have some of that within them? I mean, don't we all have some hole that needs filling? It may not have come from our parents. I mean, maybe a loss that happens later, but we all suffer some loss. And so when you see it in children, it's it's just so elemental. And the way they deal with it is so elemental. It's without all the layers of that we've built up as adults to deal with loss and pain. And when kids suffer this stuff, we see it so rawly. It feels more powerful when kids grapple with this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And that's also why it's, uh, it's even more difficult to not sort of like intervene, you know, Yeah. <laughs> to yeah. not just go like get the ice cream cone, get the ice cream cone. So you went back to the globe and then ended up doing this kind of features work. What was the first feature you did for the Globe? What was like the first big long one you got to sink your teeth into? Oh, well, I was covering City Hall. So I did a lot of just quick political stuff. When I switched over to covering the New England beat, which I loved, I mean, that was really fun because I got to just roam all over the place and write interesting stories about anything. And, you know, it was during the heyday. It was yeah. during a really good flush period. So they were, the editor said, every day, every week, just come back with something good. And that's what I did. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, so I think out of that experience, my favorite one was there was a really tiny town up in Maine that decided to just forget it and throw the whole town government overboard and decide that they were just going to be a territory part of the state of Maine that would govern them. And they would have no, any of their own, anything. They would just be 
Oh, it's like a libertarian fantasy. It kind of, yeah, it kind of was like Ron Paul was like there, you know. But I happened to find out before the last town meeting. So I went. And when you were able to be there for the last town meeting, that becomes like a tiny narrative. I mean, granted, it wasn't, you know, days of spending time with these people, but it was three hours of being in this very intimate, sad meeting where people were divvying up the town hall, the chairs were being given out, and <laughs> everybody town funeral. Was, it was town funeral. It really, that's a good way to put it. That's a really great way to put it. So, I mean, like those kinds of stories were the beginnings of realizing that narrative is really everywhere, and you don't need four months. You can do three-hour reporting that yields a narrative story. That sounds like such a fun job. That was a great job. I love You like see you why were, I didn't do all these narratives for a while? Like, I <laughs> like you were literally that. just like driving around New England looking for stories? I would go. I mean, I usually I'd have a, an idea before <laughs> I went. But um, but yeah, it was, it, was really, um, it was a really freeform job. It was very cool. When I emailed you to do this, I was like, I really want to know what it's like to work at the Boston Globe. <laughs> and you were like, I no longer work at the Boston Globe. <laughs> so what, uh, what happened? Why? What, uh, well, uh, so, you know, I guess I'd been there 15 years. It'd been a while. And there have been these buyout offers that they've been floating for, I don't know, every year I've been there, basically, in the last 10 years, it feels like. And I never really thought about taking it before. I'd always been immersed in doing something. And... This spring, they floated another one. And I don't know why, but I think I thought to myself, maybe this is the time. I've been here 15 years. I had started writing this book, getting up at insane hours before my kids and trying to get it done. And it was like, no, that's just, you know, like the universe was like, no, Sarah, that's, that's not going to happen. And so it just, I, you know, so I was sort of thinking about like, well, there's this other thing I want to do with, I just want to try this. And I really kind of got my heart set on doing that. And then, uh, you know, the buyout offer was pretty good. And I, it's when I sort of did the math, I was like, well, I could get a paid book leave if I do this. And that's sort of what I ended up deciding. Was I, it like a quick decision or something you thought about for a long time? I thought about it really intensively for two weeks. Um, because, I mean, it wasn't like I hadn't ever thought of leaving before. I'd thought about leaving, but I'd always decided to stay. And this time I kept coming back to, it's time to go. It just is. Like, my gut just said it's just time to do some other stuff and, and you know, just spread your wings a little bit. And uh, I told my editors, and everybody was like, oh, no. And I was like, well, you know. And everybody sort of came to it and was like, well, all right, we understand. And then I came home, and my husband said, you know, you just blew up your career. And I was like, <laughs> you're right and then he goes but in a good way and i said okay see that's exactly it that's totally it and and that's that's how i still feel and when was that uh end of june wow yeah how are you feeling i feel pretty good you know i mean it's a beautiful august day i'm here with you it's great <laughs> you, it's a beautiful august day you're here in the basement of a yeah, library exactly it's all good right what are you gonna do with the rest of your life uh, like, what am I going to be when I grow up, right? Yeah, um, yeah I guess, uh, well, I'm going to work on this book. That's my, my goal for this year. Can you tell me what the book is? Yeah, it's, um, it's fiction. Really? I'm like, I'm like the opposite. I think most people start fiction and think like, you know, think, oh, I'm going to do fiction. And then they maybe say, well, maybe not. I need to make some money. Yeah, I saw, I saw a joke on Twitter the other day that like, every single one of these interviews someone said like well i really wanted to write fiction <laughs> i'm like the opposite because i always thought oh my gosh i could never do that there's just no way i it didn't even dawn on me and then um 
I started doing these narrative stories. And to, in order to get better at that, I, sort of, I just said, you know, I should probably try to write short stories because then I'll really feel like the arc of these stories and the devices that writers use to tell a story. So I just started writing short stories and starting to like it a little bit and realizing, like, I'm really not great at this, but I do like it. So Did you uh, want to get them, like, published? Have they been published? Did I miss that in my research? No, no. They, no. In fact, they've been rejected. Every time I've sent them out, it's been like, no, thank you. But, um, <laughs> yeah, but, but encouraging notes, like nice notes, which sort of made me think, okay, like, I don't have an MFA, and I do, I'm, I'm definitely missing the, the short stories at Geist right now, but like the writing seemed like it actually, it wasn't like a laughable thing. So I thought, okay, like, that's all right. Um, and then I started thinking about this, this one story that just gripped me, and it's about a, um, a, a young man in Baltimore in 1917 who is a German-American, and the war begins. And it's about him grappling with his identity his being called to arms and having to go over there and fight his kin, basically. And it's based loosely on a, on a real character who, in fact, lived in Baltimore. And I went to visit Baltimore, and it's just it's such a totally interesting city. And when you go back through the history, you cannot believe that how many Germans there were. Like, it, it truly was a very, very German city. And it completely disappeared because you know, the discrimination was just, incredible and the way that that experience compares with what's happening with muslims in this country was really quite it's Hmm. it's it's a real good parallel because there were some germans that did some really bad things in america they came over they snuck in they they had bombs and did bad things hurt people so everyone had reasons to be fearful of some germans but it spread to the entire population including people who had been here for generations and you think of what we deal with now and it's it's not so different so i feel like um you know, it's a story about coming to terms with who you are and how you can be different but be who you are within a society that fears you at some point. It's a totally great pitch. I want to read that book. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> What's it like going to report for a novel? It's so interesting because I have to turn off my reporter brain and say, you know, you do not need every single fact about X, Y, or Z, you can get the flavor and that's enough. And yet at the same time, I want it to be accurate. You know, Mm -hmm. I wanted, um, say, the park that he lived across from to be the park where he lived and I wanted to be able to describe it accurately. So I can't take my reporter hat off, but it's really fun to then, to to realize that your characters drive the story, not the facts. And that's a really different well, I also imagine thing. like there must be some nice element of like there's no like uh, no ice cream cone questions. There's no ice cream cone questions. I can be as I can have my characters be as mean and and deprive them as many things as I want, and they don't <laughs> suffer in real life. <laughs> so you're going to write a novel? That's awesome. Are you going to keep writing stories? Yeah, I'm going to go back to it. I'll go back to journalism when when I finish this book. Except for then the book's going to be this giant hit and it's there right now. <laughs> Thanks. Then your journalism career is going to end because you're going to be a novelist. <laughs> hey, Sarah, thanks very much for taking the time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week, Mickey Capper, our intern, Courtney Harrell. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp and AlarmGrid. And thanks very much to our unofficial sponsor, the Concord Free Library. Gave me a space to finally sit down with Sarah Schweitzer, something I've been wanting to do for a long time. It was a treat. We'll see you next week. Wait, what's the name of your book? I don't have one yet. I'm thinking Henry. Henry's good. Yeah, just Henry. 
Henry's the name of Evan's cat. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Aw. See, I knew it was a good name. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. <laughs> 